Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. I had an audit client that I've worked on for three years, and it was my audit, and uh, we found out that some of the transactions were, to be short and appropriate or explicit, bogus. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, Where Accountants Go podcast. If that voice sounded familiar to you, it's because our guest this week is David Holt of Holt CPE. David teaches several CPE courses around the state and is probably best known for his ethics seminars. In this episode, David shares how he got into the educational field in the first place, but then also shares some insight into ethical concerns for the accounting profession and in particular, how to avoid or help prevent issues from popping up in the first place. David generally gets paid for his time discussing these topics, so I feel very fortunate that he chose to spend this time with us. I hope you find this information interesting and informative all at the same time. Without further ado, here we go. Well, hello, David. Thank you for being open to scheduling this. I I figured your perspective would be particularly valuable to our listeners. Hey, Mark, I appreciate being part of your blog, and I can try to give you candid answers, and I I just appreciate being part of what you're doing. Oh, well, you're welcome, and thank you very much. I was hoping to have you on the show as a guest for a few reasons, actually. And, And first of all, it's frequent that at least I hear about practicing accountants considering entering the teaching industry, whether they're thinking about full-time or part-time at a university or they're you know, thinking about the CE field. So I thought your experience would be particularly helpful to those listeners that may be considering that as a, an option later on. But then obviously, you're so well-known for providing ethics education to CPAs. I figured you could provide some good insight and and perhaps even guidance to our listeners that are a little earlier on in their careers. Before we get into that, though, let's start with your own career so people know who David Holt is. How did you come to enter the continuing education field? Well, it was, I guess, not exactly planned, but I was working for a CPA firm in Houston. About half of my career started and was completed in the Houston area before I got to uh, south and southwest Texas, but I was working for a CPA firm and they decided that from the manager level up that we would all participate in training. And that's basically how I got started doing continued education in-house. And then one of the partners in our firm encouraged me to, to do training for other CPAs and I joined the Texas Society of CPAs as a continuing education instructor. And at that point in time, there were courses that were already prepared 
typically AICPA type courses or PPC courses, and all they were looking for were instructors, and that's how I started, and that would have been uh, in the early 1990s. Okay. Were you, I don't know how else to say it, were you a paid speaker at that point, or, or were you just starting to volunteer your time? Outside well, for the for the for the firm I work for, obviously it was part of my salary and dual purpose: continuing education plus training our employees. My primary responsibility area was audit, and and so that was where I spent most of my training time. But when when you work for TOCPA, you not only got paid in the early '90s, but you also got paid based on evaluation. So the better you perform, the more you got paid. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So from your first class, pretty much outside of your own firm, you were able to turn it into an income stream. Yeah, maybe enough to uh, pay your electric bill or something like that. It wasn't (laughs) a whole lot of money starting off, and it was just a a secondary benefit was to put the name of the CPA firm out in the public. If you had a manager, partner, person that was teaching continuing education, that was somewhat of a bio-type situation where it was a positive thing for publicity and responsibility and recognition for the CPA firm you work for. Okay. How much did you build up? I guess how much were you, were you teaching before you decided to go full-time and continue in education? Were you just teaching a few classes and you went cold turkey into it, or, or did you you know, build up sort of a part-time income first, or how did that work? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And, and any startup business, not just CPAs and not just continuing education instructors, but almost any small business, this is a nice transition, and transition is always a scary thing. But at the same time, for accountants, we try to do it in a financially feasible manner. And what happened to me was, I did it, you know, after hours, a few, four, five, six, eight, maybe a year, just a little bit of extra money for the firm initially. And then about 1993, I was working seasonal. I was doing audit work three or four months out of the year for a local CPA firm. And then I had the rest of the time freed up. And so I had a national CPE provider that I went to work for. And so I did both for about two years, and I was full-blown teaching seminars uh, by the end of 1993 and first part of 1994. Okay. You eased into it really well, actually. That sounds like the plan went perfectly. Wow. Well, I don't know about the plan, but I, I did have a lot of encouragement from my wife and several other CPAs that uh, were instrumental in kind of pushing me through the door and challenging me to take on something new. Okay. So then that's 24 years. Is that right? That you've had your business? Yeah. This year would be my 24th year of teaching, continuing it. What what are some of the lessons that stick out in that time that that you've learned either easily or the hard way? (laughs) Well, at first I was teaching somebody else's material and it's almost like wearing somebody else's clothes. You may not like exactly how they look. They may not fit exactly the way you would like them to do, but you, you do it. And, and then uh, after a while, I, I started writing my own material. And, and I do a lot of research. I read a lot of contemporary articles. And I try to make the continuing education material new 
gap standards, new audit standards, new ideas about detecting fraud, and of course, our principles and rules for ethical conduct. I try to embrace those rules, so to speak, to spend more time on implementation and the functionality of it and, and, and share a lot of war stories, both mine and other CPAs, about how to do it and how to do it right. And a lot of times the rules say, go do this, but they don't tell you how to do it. And so we spend a lot of time trying to not just go over the rules, but also implement and, and experience the, both the plus and the minuses of, of continuing education and hopefully a, a realistic experience for all parties in the room. Okay. What, what do you enjoy most about what you do? Well, I use an analogy and I, I know I've heard other people say it, but I like to share with folks and, and have interaction and, and have an interactive type format. And so that one of the things I enjoy is I'm also not just a teacher, but I'm also a student. And I used to do about 85 or 95 seminars a year, and I've done CPE in 25 different states. So inevitably, almost every seminar, I would learn something from the audience. So one of the benefits of being interactive is you get feedback and people share their war stories if they feel comfortable, and I try to make sure that happens. And, and as a result, the whole room benefits from experiences that one or two people have, that, but probably most people in the room have. So the interactive part of continuing education, and even to the extent of being a student and a teacher simultaneously in almost every session, I really enjoy that. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah, you do sound like you still get a, a lot of satisfaction out of teaching, which is that's beautiful. Well, I wouldn't be doing this podcast justice if I didn't ask you about some, just some general ethical questions. And I guess one of the things on my mind is, unfortunately, many, many accountants are put in an ethical dilemma at some point in their career, and you know whether it's as simple as, I shouldn't say simple, but whether it's as small as a client wanting a little tax deduction that they don't you know, have backup for, or to something much, much more complex, obviously. Do you have any advice on how to avoid getting into those situations in the first place? What, what are your thoughts on that? I try to bring this up for sure in the ethics seminars and sometimes even in some of the audit seminars or even occasionally in some of the fraud seminars because my audience is not just CPA firms but also industry, government, and nonprofit CPAs. And my number one recommendation that very few people are actually practicing other than maybe at the largest companies in our country is you need to have a written agreement you're hiring me as a CPA, not, not just an accountant, not just an auditor, not just a fraud examiner, not just an IT person, not just a tax preparer or tax counselor, but you're hiring me as a certified public accountant. As a result, our relationship is different than any other profession. The P stands for public, which means I have a responsibility to the public beyond the entity that pays me. And so we have these requirements, uh, objectivity, integrity, et cetera, and, th and those are going to be challenged. So your comment, tax return, financial statement, regulatory report, et cetera, et cetera, there's always going to be challenges, some of it intentional and some of it unintentional. 
to our integrity and ethical behavior. So my recommendation is have a written agreement saying, either if it's a CPA firm engagement letter or as an employee employment contract, have a written agreement saying, you're hiring me as a certified public accountant. I not only represent this company, but any part of the public that benefits from my professional service, tax return, IT, consulting, audit, financial statements, regulatory report, whatever, any part of the public that uses my professional services, I have a responsibility to do my work in compliance with the rules, but also objective and fair to all parties to the professional service. So what I try to do and recommend that CPAs take that extra effort, number one, communicate that to their employers and clients up front in writing, make it part of a written agreement saying you're hiring me as a CPA, I have a responsibility to you who pay me, but I also have a responsibility to the public that uses this work product, possibly even though they don't directly pay me. So I, I think that it certainly doesn't make all the problems go away, but at least it sets the framework and the mindset that you're hiring me as a CPA, uh, not just a bean counter, not just a computer person, not just a tax advisor, but somebody that has responsibility to the public. Okay, so ed- educate the employer or you know, whether industry or, well, CPA firm partner, I guess that wouldn't be an issue, but educate the employer that, I guess, on what the CPA really means and what it stands for. And it's not just a test we took, that there's more to it behind that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's almost like they want our good housekeeping seal of approval. People hire CPAs rather than just accountants or finance people, somebody that's not certified and licensed by a state board. They hire those people to do the same work we do to a great degree, but it looks better if they hire a certified public accountant. Can I be going to a, a local medical practitioner that's not a doctor? Well, you go to a doctor because they're more qualified to do what you need them to do, and if you got a letter from a doctor, you can miss work. Well, same thing with us. When we sign tax returns, when we sign regulatory reports, when we sign audit reports, when we sign off on financial statements, give them to the bank, give them to other lenders, et cetera, et cetera, seeing that CPA letter beside a name means there's a professional requirement higher than any other group that could perform that service. As a result, you know, we, we have to, there's a give and take. You get the professional recognition, but I also have to be honest with you, I represent the whole public that's using this work product, not just the people that pay me. Okay, okay. Well, if you haven't done that <laughs> and and you're asked to, to do something that, that you feel you know, is against your ethics, I, I think sometimes when, particularly if the person isn't another CPA or isn't an accountant, perhaps, they, they're they thinking, they're asking you to bend the rules slightly and, and really you're you're breaking them and stomping on them, you know, in, in your eyes. How, how do you bring that up without it becoming a verdict on the individual personally? Or, you know, how can you, I guess, you know, stand up for what you feel is right and still keep the working relationship? Absolutely. It's always my number one choice. My number one choice is let's try not to be adversaries here. Let's use our ethics rules. Let's use our professional designation. Let's use our integrity, objectivity to promote long-term 
healthy relationships. And so what I try to sell, and, and I believe in it, so it's pretty easy to sell because it's how I believe it really is. I'm helping you stay out of trouble, not just short-term, but long-term. Because when you start breaking the rules, cutting the corners, getting more and more into gray areas, eventually you do things with hindsight you wish you never would have started. So my communication to audit clients, my communication to my corporate clients, where I primarily work on fraud detection cases, is well, let's do it right right now because even though we may have done it wrong in the past, this will help us get healthier and healthier financially, et cetera, et cetera, long term. So number one, let's comply with the rules, not just to comply with the rules, but to do what's right for all parties involved and stay out of trouble. You hire me to help you stay out of trouble. There you go. Yeah. Reflect it back on the, the benefit they get out of it. It's a positive thing. I'm here to help you. Nobody would hire a CPA otherwise. They don't hire us because we tell funny jokes. <laughs> Other than maybe Fred Thompson or somebody. But, but right. Fred, uh, Timmons. Fred Timmons. They don't hire us because of our personality. They hire us to keep them out of trouble. And and that's that's straightforward. And I'm, I'm, you like it. You don't like it. I'm not trying to be mean. The rules are written for this purpose. Here's the detriment to the other party. You may not understand why this rule says that, but here's how it kind of is unfair to other people if we don't tell them this or if we don't comply with this rule. And long-term, we're better off if we just do what's right and we stay out of trouble and don't have to worry about that thing coming back on us down the road. Yes. Yeah, address address the problem immediately, not not continue it. But it's a win-win situation. A little bit of sacrifice short-term, but long-term, we'll get payback. Okay. Well, I told you about this question in advance in particular because I wanted you to have some time to think about it. Looking forward, is there anything you feel that may make it even more difficult for the accounting profession from an ethical standpoint? Well, short version of the answer as a certified fraud examiner, we keep up with statistics about occupational fraud, fraud that happens in the workplace. And when I'm not teaching CPE seminars, my primary other source of income is helping companies identify who stole the money and how much was stolen. But we also do fraud prevention, but most companies don't really spend a whole lot of, mo- a whole lot of money on that. But the bottom line is this. Since the 21st century started with the famous Enron, WorldCom, MCI frauds, we realized that we're in a new culture. The 21st century is not at all the same culture as the 20th century, not not just in the United States, but worldwide. Uh, We believe as fraud examiners that possibly 20% of the worldwide economy is fraud, waste, and abuse. And we have statistics both domestically and internationally to support that. So as we see our culture progress towards greed, progress towards, as many people say in the ethics seminar, a lack of morals or radically changing morals, and and even as we see recently in our country, Time Magazine headline said the new president-elect is the president of the divided states of America. We're hugely culturally divided, and and there's a growing population of people, examples I normally use in Wall Street 
and Washington that are what I would call unethical people. That they have no concept or no similar concept to what normal CPAs have regarding telling the truth, complying with the rules, and being honest. That's not a top priority item for them. As a result, there's a whole lot of our culture and a whole lot of our economy where the ethical rules and our behavior for telling the truth and being honest have been minimized. As a result, it's a problem. For example, all those bailout companies in 2008, 2009, 2010, they were doing, most of them, some form of regulatory, tax, and financial reporting fraud. And as a result, every single auditor that signed off on those reports was signing off on a fraudulent financial statement. And bottom line is, uh, the auditors of Enron, they got in big trouble. The auditors of MCI WorldCom, uh, companies in the 20th century that we detected in the initial part of the 21st century, they got in trouble. But the bailout company auditors, not anybody, nobody, nobody went to prison. None of the corporate executives uh, had hardly anything done to them. And so we have this new culture where you can do fraud, waste, and abuse, and nothing happens to you. So our profession, both on tax returns and also on financial statements, is greatly challenged by that new culture or developing culture. That's interesting. It'll, it'll be interesting to me to see how the millennial generation affects all this over time because so much of what's written about that generation is about how they, they want to know what the organization stands for and the vision and you know the long term and is the organization benefiting the community and the world and when they're looking at employers it'll be interesting to see as more more of those get into management and upper management and executive positions how how that affects you know corporate ethics yeah and i hope it helps us and yeah. it's kind of interesting when i got my cpa license uh, cpas were about 80 85 percent male and about maybe 10 or 15, 20% female, and now it's real close to parity. Possibly recent CPA is a little bit more female than male, and as it turns out, whistleblowers, for whatever reason, females have a tendency to be less fearful about job security and doing whistleblowing than males do. And, and I'm not trying to make any kind of gender bias comment there. I'm just saying factually we know that. So the, here's the good news is this new developing breed of CPAs, at least at parity, 50-50 male-female, if not a little bit stronger on the female end, they're a little bit less good old boy team-oriented in the sense that if you do fraud, we'll just go along with it. Uh, they're a little bit more independent-minded, so there is some hope there, uh, silver lining, if you want to call it that. That is good. Well, what improvements have you seen over the years that, that's made it easier for the accounting profession, either from an ethical standpoint or you know, from a, a responding-to-ethical-issues standpoint, reporting it? I mean, any improvements you've seen? Oh, huge, huge. Okay. Disregarding the people part, the most dynamic is the technology. We have data mining. We can use Excel programs. We have software. You can sit at your PC at home, 2 o'clock in the morning. I do this frequently. Get up out of bed because you have a thought, and even though I'm not technologically well qualified to, to do the keystrokes, a lot of younger people are, but the technology is so powerful now that even computer illiterate people like myself 
we can use data mining software and get a huge amount of information and analysis of information that in many cases makes detecting improprieties, unethical behavior, and even fraud, waste, and abuse relatively easy and quick compared to what it used to be. So technology and the mindset of the young people that are really technologically savvy, that is a power tool that I try to associate with on every fraud examination, either using client employees or other CPAs that I take with me. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to the last section of the podcast here, but before I do, do you have any other closing thoughts on ethics for accountants? Anything else you'd like to pass on in that area? Well, I think that when you get into a dilemma, I mean, the rules are good rules. Tax rules, people argue that's a good rule. That's not a good rule. That's I don't like that. Audit, accounting rules, people argue that's not a great idea. But our ethics rules, 38 years of being a CPA, I think they're still great. Both AICPA and Texas State Board Administrative Code, our ethics rules are still marvelous rules, not just ideology, but functional, practical ways to give the public assurance that the tax return, the financial statement, the information you're using to make a decision is correct, is fairly presented. So I think that when we get into trouble, and I have this, I do this myself. When I get into an ethical dilemma, when I get a challenge, I might contact the AICPA, but probably not. I do, because I teach ethics, I have no hesitation to contact the Texas State Board and even get counsel from legal counsel at the State Board, and and they're very responsive. Bill Tracy and everybody, Jerry Hill, et cetera, that works at the State Board, if you're honest with them, they'll give you candid responses, not always what you want to hear, but your peers, I think, are the best support group. Other CPAs that care about you, that have empathy for your concern, and that I've traveled around and done CPE, whether it be an ethics course or an audit course or anything else, one of the things I really enjoy, either live after a seminar or by way of email uh, subsequent to a seminar, I have this ethical dilemma could you help me with it? And so we reach out and we help each other make the right decision, long-term, short-term. And our support group, in my case, is always another handful of CPAs that care about me. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to be useful to our listeners about the Texas State Board as well. Well, I'm going to move into the final four questions that I ask every podcast guest. And, you know, they're a little, little more personal, less career, although that crosses over, obviously. Number one, what has been your proudest moment? Well, this is probably a surprise. You know, as a fraud examiner, you, you might think, well, the biggest fraud I ever found. As an auditor, which is where I started my career as a financial statement auditor, you might think, well, the biggest adjusting entry I proposed which are all kind of negative things. But what I'm most proud of is I had a guy that I started with at a national CPA firm. We were both on the audit team together. He eventually became the managing partner of a CPA firm, and I became an auditor and then eventually a CPE instructor and a fraud examiner, and I would help him with audits periodically. Well, having families and personal relationships with people that have uh, 
different personal problems, including CPAs. He was aware of some of the things that had gone on in my family. I had two younger brothers when I was in my 30s that both died prematurely, and, and they had addiction problems. They both died in their early 20s. And this managing partner of the CPA firm knew me well enough over a 10, 15, 20-year period that he said, well, I have an audit manager that has an addiction problem. Would you mind coming to my CPA office and sharing your personal life with your, about you and your family and what, what the pain was and all that and how you guys worked through it? And coincidentally, in the administrative code of our ethics rules, Section 502 is about peer assistance. And, and our TSCPA group has developed a lot of information, and they say as many as 10,000 CPAs in Texas periodically have mental health or addiction-type problems. So it's not like, uh, I mean, because of all the stress we work under, as human beings, uh, we try to get the pain and the stress to go away, and periodically that becomes a little bit self-destructive. So. Bottom line, and I'm going to shorten this just a little bit, I was able to go share some of the experience of my family, my younger brothers, and what our family went through to help them through addictions with this audit manager, great auditor, by the way. And to the best of my knowledge to this day, his life turned around. He's still a great auditor, but some of the addiction problems that were trying to destroy him, he doesn't have those anymore. So I guess that's my proudest moment. Wow, that's touching, David. You you may have saved a life. Well, and it's real. Yeah, and and my two younger brothers, by the way, they didn't. Their lives were not saved. But you know, if you go through the pain of those kind of experiences, the only silver lining, the only upside of that, is share your pain with somebody, and maybe they can turn around. And our TSCPA does that through peer assistance. This is part of our ethics rules. Administrative Code Section 502, but there's an 800 number for peer assistance through the TSCPA as well, and and it's not embarrassing, it's not punitive, it's totally voluntary, totally confidential, and we help other CPAs overcome things that are common to unbelievably, possibly as many as 10,000 CPAs a year. Wow. Just in our state, just, just based on Texas information. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to be sure I put that in the show notes. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made, what you learned from it, and the bigger the better. Okay. When I thought about that, I immediately have one experience that was a tough one. Early in my career, I became audit manager for a large CPA firm, and we had pretty big audit clients uh, because we were a, a local CPA firm. Most of those audit clients were not public, but quite a few of those audit clients eventually went public. Well, I had an audit client that I'd worked on for three years, and it was my audit, and we found out that some of the transactions were, to be short and appropriate or explicit, bogus. And I thought they were, you know, good people, uh, and they were, they are good people. That that's not anything that I changed my mind about. But they had some receivables that were not real receivables, and they were related party transactions. They didn't tell us about it. We kind of accidentally found out about it through audit procedures, and we found out they were deceiving us. 
Well, long story, a little bit shortened. I was talking to one of the shareholder vice presidents about this receivable in, in a, you know, uh, kind of a candid, don't show all your cards, audit your mindset. And I said, uh, well, this receivable looks like it's like three years old and it keeps getting larger and never gets smaller. And the vice president said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, they never pay you. He says, well, it's a good receivable. Uh, I said, well, we sent them a confirmation three times and they won't even acknowledge that, that they owe us the money. Uh, they, they owe my client the money. I'm the outside auditor. Well, he says, well, I can get you a confirmation on that right away if you want me to. And he, he contacts the president of this other company and, and they faxed. This is a long time ago. They, we had fax machines back then. And they uh, faxed a, an immediate confirmation that none of my staff could get them to confirm. And we'd already done some other procedures. For example, call their payables clerk and ask them how much they owe us. And the payables clerk said, we don't owe you anything. So I'd already done my legwork. I'd done my homework. So when my client tried to trick me, I didn't really set them up, but I was exercising professional skepticism because I suspected they were deceiving us. And when I got the confirmation back face-to-face with the vice president, I allowed my emotions to take over, and I said, this piece of paper is not worth the ink it's printed on. And I made some very aggressive, explicit, negative comments to the vice president of the company. Well, it didn't take long before our managing partner showed up at the job site, and he basically told me to leave the premises because I was about ready to blow our largest audit client because of my emotions. Even though what they were doing was wrong, I allowed my personality to get involved in this, this, in this particular case, to, to great detriment. Eventually, we wrote the receivable off, and they admitted it wasn't a real receivable. But my personal confrontation of a shareholder and executive of an audit client, I allowed it to become too personal, and I didn't maintain the professionalism I should have. Okay. So the you know, quote-unquote mistake in there that you're referencing isn't that you stood up, but that it's just the way in which you did it, maybe the, the tone and the fact that you did it directly. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, my, the managing partner of our firm, who's also a friend of mine and known for many, many years, and he's still a friend of mine, you know, he had to come in and, and do some loss control there because even though what I was saying was factually true, the way I was presenting it was in a very adversarial confrontational way that I probably should not have done. I probably should have contacted him and allowed him to get involved in a more diplomatic way uh, rather than direct confrontation with the client. That's going to be good for some of our listeners earlier on in their career here. Thank you very much. Well, who's been the biggest mentor or biggest positive influence so far in your career? Well, I mentioned earlier that a CPA, two CPA partners were instrumental in me transitioning from auditor to CPE instructor, one in Houston, one in Duvalde, and both of those happened in the early 1990s. One of the partners, a founding partner of a regional CPA firm headquartered in Duvalde, Texas, believe it or not, he said, you know, hope. You've got some talent in communicating these difficult accounting and audit rules 
that are very, very helpful and you simplify and boil it down and make it understandable but also functional so much so that it's easier to implement and understand after we have a seminar. He said, you ought to consider making a career out of that. And he used a now deceased tax instructor, which in the early 90s was very, very popular, a guy named Sam Catter. He said, Sam has made a great career out of teaching continuing education. He said, you might want to consider doing that in the audit and accounting area. And as it turned out, his his encouragement and a encouragement of another CPA partner in Houston were huge in my transitional career. Hmm, wonderful. Well, I usually ask about the best advice you've ever received. That may have been just it, but is, is there any other advice that you think would be useful to pass on to our listeners that you've received? Yeah, and I got it, I think, at a CPE seminar in Chicago. I was teaching the seminar, but always on an interactive basis, and I'm always like a sponge when people in the seminar mention things that's effective for them. I had the controller of a company share this story with me, and I've used it over and over and over since then. As a kid growing up, we had this song called Walk a Mile in My Shoes. And basically what it's saying is put yourself in the other person's shoes and it helps you have understanding and all that. And so the CPA in Chicago, during a seminar, a corporate controller, he tried to persuade the majority shareholder to do certain things about disclosures, about transactions that would be fair to the bank, that would be fair to the bonding company, even though those represent payables, and you may not want to be totally candid with the people that loan you money or give you insurance or approve your bond. So what he tried to do is the majority shareholder, he said, if you were the lender, would you want to know that? If you were the bonding company, would you want to know that? So some of the best advice, some some of the best information I received is from CPE attendees. And that particular one I've used over and over since then. When people complain, I don't want them to know that, you say, why? And the question is, I'm, I'm issuing this report to the bank, to the bonding company. I'm issuing this tax return to the IRS. I'm issuing this regulatory report, et cetera. To be fair, if you were the recipient of this information, would you want to know that? Do you think that's a fair presentation to the other people? And, and so just walk a mile in my shoes. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. We also call that role play. If you were the recipient of these statements of this tax return, would you believe it was fairly presented? And so if you do the role play, put yourself in somebody else's shoes, that's not only a good perspective on is it fairly stated, is it right, is it correct, is it ethically responsible, but it's also a a good perspective on convincing other people, corporate people, clients, about what they should do when they make decisions about complying with the rules or making disclosures or compliance, et cetera. That is good advice. It is. Well, the final question before we wrap everything up, if someone wants to get in touch with you and maybe it's on an ethical question or or maybe it's just about becoming a self-employed instructor and starting that kind of business, what's the best way to reach you, David? You can try email. That's the best way. I check my email four, five, six, eight times a day. So that's the best way. It's David 
at holtcpe.com. My last name, holtcpe.com. David at holtcpe.com. And I usually respond within 24 hours. And even if I can't give you a full answer within 24 hours, I'll, I'll give you a partial and tell you I'll get back with you as soon as I have time. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. This has been very useful. We've, we've got a lot, of, a lot of nuggets of wisdom in here, and, and I appreciate you sharing your personal story. Obviously, we were going to talk about ethics questions, but I, I think it's good for people that just want to know more about the business of continuing education you know, to get some insight into how you started. So thank you very much. Mark, Mark, let me thank you because of all what you do, reaching out to a wide sector of CPAs in the San Antonio, South Central Texas area, I appreciate what you do, even the more subtle, detailed things like providing cookies for the San Antonio chapter meetings, all of those things you do for us in in a very low-profile way. At least some of us see it, and I hope we all appreciate what you do for the San Antonio chapter and CPAs in general. Thank you, David. That's very kind. Well, you're more than welcome, and and, uh, nothing but candid comments, sir. Well, I hope to see you again soon, and until then, take care. Thanks, Mark. See you, buddy. That was my interview with David Holt of Holt CPE. If you're interested in contacting David about anything that was discussed in this podcast, please feel free to reach out to him directly at david at holtcpe.com. That's david at h-o-l-t-c-p-e.com. This has been another episode of Life and Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please visit our home website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for the notes on this episode, as well as notes and broadcast of all our previous episodes. We'll be back with another interview with another accounting VIP next week. So until then, stay tuned. There's more to come.